1: Oh, good evening, it's nice to be here with so many familiar faces. <clears throat> Is Bars in here? No. Isn't it? It's his birthday today, oh. so I thought we could sing him happy birthday. Send him birthday love Mm -hmm. from us. Mm -hmm. So, um, last week I gave a talk about a thirteenth century. Japanese Zen teacher named Ehei Dogen. Um, I talked a little bit about his biography, primarily about him losing his parents at a very young age. And then um, at 13, with some help from his uncle, he went uh, and ordained as a monk which was kind of a radical thing to do in his family that expected him to go into politics. And he became a monk. And after almost 10 years of studying in Japan, he left and took a dangerous trip to China to study in China. And I told the story about his awakening by hearing someone else's um, instruction. And then... Dogen goes back to Japan and he settles in 1240 just outside, in a suburb just at the outskirts of Kyoto. Uh, Kyoto at that time was the capital of Japan. And also at that time, Kyoto was taken over um, by imperial forces and it was a very confused and fragmented time. And today, when I was reading a little bit about what was happening in Kyoto in the 13th century, it really, in some ways, sounded a lot like our times. And people were really passionate, but not the good kind of passion. And and so people were very confused at that time. And um, and also people talked a lot about being busy, which <laughs> I, I thought was really interesting. <laughs> um and so dogen goes back to kyoto at this time having really understood something deeply about practice and he starts up a monastery there and he is i guess 40 at this time and um he didn't want to be right in the capital because he didn't like what was going on in the capital anymore So he wanted to be just on the outskirts of the capital. And I I came across this letter he wrote um, today. And I I found this really interesting. This is him writing to, I assume, another monk who maybe is just becoming a teacher. And this is what he writes as soon as he settles outside Kyoto. Don't live near the capital (laughs) or near rich or powerful people. Avoid emperors, ministers, and generals. Stay deep in the mountains, far removed from worldly affairs. (coughs) Devote yourself to teaching, even if you have only one student. I really like this. Um, This was a time in Dogen's life where he was starting to uh, leave the busyness of cities, and he was writing his best poetry at this time. And his writing in this decade is the most elegant writing because it's before he leaves this area and goes further out into the mountains and starts um, Eheji, which is a monastery still working. Now, uh, you can still go there. Well, I don't think foreigners can go there, but people are still there practicing. I know somebody who practiced there, actually, who's an American. Who, who's also been in the military, and he said it's way worse than the military. Um, it's literally the kind of get up with water thrown on you in the morning, and you know, it's pretty intensive intensive training. Um, anyways so so when Dogen gets older, he, he died young. He died in his fifties. But um, so after this period, he he his writings become more austere and more about monastic practice. So the fascicle that we're gonna study, which is called the Mountain and River Sutra, is actually written at the time of his most elegant writing. Um, But there are some things you need to know before we jump in because when Dogen was 10, he was already deeply steeped in Buddhist literature, in the Chinese masters, the Japanese masters. Um, When he was a little older in China, he learned some of the Pali Canon, which had already been transmitted to China. So he has a language where he expects the reader to know a certain level of, it's like code, technical code language. So sometimes it's good to know some of the background before we, we jump in, which we're going to do tonight. So Dogen was really interested in a Chinese poet named Su Dongpo, Po, which I think in Japanese is Shou Si. Um, and the this one poem that Su Po is very famous for really influenced Dogen. And it kind of stands behind the mountain and river sutra. And that's why I think it's important just to go through this poem. So Su Dongpo wrote this poem um, that goes like this: The sound of the stream, Buddha's long, broad tongue. The form of the mountains. The Buddha's pure body. 10,000 verses through the night. In the morning, how will I explain any of this to others? Have you ever had this view? So again, the sound of the stream, that's Buddha's long, broad tongue. Can you see that? The sound of the stream is just Buddha's tongue. It's not the look of the stream, it's the sound of the stream, Is the long tongue, and the form of the mountains, his pure body. 10,000 verses through the night, in the morning, how will I explain all this to others? So picture Sudangpo. So this is a, a poem from a monastic, right? So he's in a monastery. Most of the monasteries at that time were built in mountains beside a river. So maybe he had a room it was nighttime has anyone here ever stayed in a in a in an isolated place next to a river where you're in, indoors you know but you can you don't you can't even tell you're indoors right um and you can hear as you sleep the sound of the water so he's saying that sound of the water that's buddha's long broad tongue but the sound is 10,000 verses 10,000 in zen is just like Like in Indian in yoga, we say 72,000. In Zen, they say 10,000. It just basically means lots, like a lot. I'm not going to count them all. So, like they say, 10,000 directions. So 10,000 verses just means all the teachings of the Buddha that are coming out of the mountain are coming off the Buddha's tongue, which is this river. And that's what he's listening to. How will I explain this to others? Have you ever had this feeling where You really see something and really hear some deep teaching of the insentient world? And how do you... I remember this once swimming in a lake, and and I was by myself, and I came up out of the lake, and right there was a loon. And just looked right into the loon. Like, I literally came up, and the loon came up, and we were like... (laughs) And I remember thinking, how will I explain this to, <laughs> to others? I didn't think, oh, the Buddha's body coming out of the mountain. <laughs> so Dogen wrote something about this poem before he writes the Mountains and River Sutra. And here's what he wrote. On the night that Sushi was enlightened, he had just heard his teacher teaching about insentient beings preaching the Dharma. So, so technically, insentient means not having sense organs. So, the, the material world. Um, about insentient beings preaching the Dharma. Roof tiles, windows, walls, the floor, they're all preaching the Dharma. They're all preaching the teachings, if you're listening. His teacher's words did not instantly awaken him, but when the sound of the stream hit him, it was as if the rolling waves passed through the air and enlightened him. Was it the sound of the stream or his master's words that flowed into his ears? I would suppose that his master's teaching on insentient beings quietly echoed with the sound of the stream at night. Do Do you know that thing that happens where we're experiencing something but because of the way a teacher or a poet or someone has described it, we actually can feel it in a deeper way. This is the beautiful part of, of cultural form, right? You know? Why do we love Paris so much? Is it because of the architecture alone and the city planning? I don't think so. I think we love Paris because we turn a corner and we know that corner from Henry Dra- James. We know that corner from some writer we love. And so so, so that writer, in a way, allows us a, a kind of deeper experience of Paris. Right? So here's what he's saying, is the teacher's words and the stream seem to mix together and the whole thing just becomes the Buddha's tone. So it's a beautiful poem. So Dogen really was influenced by this poem. And he wrote an essay called Sound of the Stream, Form of the Mountain. Um, and you can find that if you, any of you have bought Dogen's Treasury of the True Dharma Eye for $150 um, on Amazon. But also, and, and if you have notes here, you might want to write this down. If you Google Stanford University Soto Research Project, I, I was amazed to see that a group of scholars led by Carl Bielfeld at Stanford University is translating Dogen right now and they're putting it up all online but it has so many footnotes that if you really want to go deep into this text it's all there online and, and I can't believe how good the trans it's my favorite translation I never thought I would read better than this one which I paid $150 for <laughs> uh, but, but that translation has really surpassed uh, anything I've read of, of Dogen you, you can just feel feel it. Can feel Dogen. So, anyways, uh, that's Stanford University Soto Research Project. When you type in Dogen, then you type in Shobogenzo, which is the book that this comes out of, and, and then you can find it. So, anyways, save you some cash. I hope. So that there's more for the Donna. <laughs> Donna, Donna. Um, So as any good uh, kind of uh, academic would do, you don't go too far past the title when you start exploring a text. And I think the title here is really, really important because Dogen's text that we're going to spend the next couple months studying is called the Mountain and River (coughs) Sutra, which is a play on how traditional texts like the last (coughs) one we just studied is a sutra, which is where you get the English word suture, which is when you tie together words very concisely and they become a sacred text and then you can chant them. Okay? The, the terms are sutured together, literally. So Dogen's playing with that by saying, it's not, it's not a sutra about mountains and rivers, it's the mountain and river sutra. So mountains are sutras. Rivers are sutras, you see? So there's this kind of impulse that, it's like saying, forget the sutras, we've got mountains and rivers. So if you really want to study the sutras, what you really need to open to is this mix of the way the sutras open us up and the mountains and the rivers open us up. So the, it's the, the mountains and rivers sutra-ing, if that's possible. And you can see where Dogen gets this idea is from Po's poem, where the river is the broad tongue of the Buddha giving commentary. You know. I had this experience in Thailand. Uh, I, I was out, uh, this was uh, two months now ago, I guess, I I was out one day in the afternoon with Richard Freeman, who I was studying with, and suddenly it just started pouring, as it can at this time of year in Thailand, just started pouring. So we just sat there for a long time, just listening to the rain, and then Richard said, oh, that's the commentary on yoga. (laughs) I love this. Uh, we always think that humans are always doing the commentary on the natural world. But you just think, oh, that, that's... The rain is actually the commentary on, on yoga. So I, I liked this. It really stayed with me. Um, should we pick up the text? Does everybody have a, a copy of it? If you don't, there's lots here. Something happened with the photocopier and the stapler didn't work. So I'm sorry they're not stapled. Del, do you want to just hand these out if anybody needs them? So, he starts out. Mountains, oh, here Koz translates it not as rivers, but as waters. He also changes the color from blue to green. I don't know why. Mountains and waters right now actualize the ancient Buddha expression. So right now, mountains and waters are actualizing or they're expressing the ancient Buddha expression. This is an interesting thing, right? It's supposed to be humans that are expressing the teachings. But no, mountains and waters right now actualize the ancient Buddha expression, each abiding in its condition unfolds its full potential. So, mountains, when you think about a mountain, has anyone here ever spent time in mountains? So, a mountain, um, it just stands still. And it stands still uh, forever, right? Mountains really express stillness. I would say that if you're a city person whose nervous system is kind of fried from the grid, probably it would be really good to go into the mountains and and be in hills, you know, and really feel the land, especially those of us in Toronto, you know, really feel the way land can just rise up so much bigger than us. It's so healing, isn't it? So he's saying mountains and waters right now actualize the Buddha expression um, I, I think the term right now is important that the mountains and rivers are also a teaching about time because mountains are, are always in time human beings we always have this relationship with time where we're like inside time or outside of time but time's not like that, like this room, right? You can come inside this room or you can go outside this room. So you can do that with space, you can come inside or outside it, but you can't do that with time. You can't go, time's not something you can go in and out of. So I think that term right now is really important. It reminds me of the Yoga Sutra, where the first line is Ata. Right now is yoga. Right now, the mountains are expressing everything the Buddha can express. So are rivers. Your body is like a mountain and a river. Um, Karina said something to me last week: "Your teeth are hard." It's so simple, isn't it? Your teeth are hard." Now I keep I'm just checking. <laughs> this is also like mountains and rivers, our bodies like this, right? Our teeth are hard and our gums are soft, right? We have rivers. Look at your veins. Look at the backs of your hands. In Sanskrit, we have nadis, which people usually translate as meridians. But the word nodi just means a little river. So we have these nadis, these rivers that move through us. Your heart is circulating. Your pelvic floor is a lot like the earth. And when you sit down, there really is like a yantra, a triangle from the sits bones right up here to the bridge of the nose. There really is a kind of sense of a mountain. You know. um, and within that triangle, there's also other triangles. And so there's this sense of kind of earthiness of the body, that you're not separate from mountains and rivers. Your teeth are mountains. Can you feel <laughs> that? I used to do this practice I like. I got this from Dogen. Dogen has an essay in this book called Wash Your Face, where the basic idea is when you wash your face, you should really treat it sacredly. So so when you wash your face, you should feel the water against your face, but then you should also meditate on how the water flows through all those pipes, pumps, up and down hills, through the aquifer, all the way back up into clouds. And then you should go in the other direction and feel how the face is moist and how the face is actually like water, how the face is not hard like your tooth is hard. And then you can feel that it's just like water washing water. And there's like this face in the way. Mm -hmm. Or if you're not into it, there's a me in the way washing my face but if you really kind of drop under that it's just the the water is washing itself you know it's like what people do at the ganges you know is it the most holy thing you can do at the ganges is take out the water and then pour it back to the water so you're like taking out a corner of the ganges and you're just giving it back to the to the ganges so beautiful So mountains and rivers are just doing this. And us humans, we're like making it all so complicated. Don't you think? Does anyone here have this feeling? How could I be a little more mountain and river-like? We're going to get to that. (coughs) Um, Because mountains and waters have been active since before the empty eon, they are alive. At this moment. So as long as we're alive, we're we're time. Um, Mountains and waters right now. And then this next sentence. Because mountains and waters have been active since before the empty eon, they're alive at this moment. <clears throat> so last week I talked about how Dogen has this theme he uses a lot called Dharma position this is where it shows up where he says you know, what's your position at this moment you, you can only have a position at this moment and that position is contingent and is constantly changing so in a way he's setting up for a kind of change of logic where mountains and rivers are here for the time being but they can only be for the time being Like you, you can only be here for the time being. You can experience your life differently than for this time being. Do you remember we did this practice a while ago where you should spend your day whenever you remember to see whatever you're seeing as a moment in time? So you walk into your apartment and just see it as a moment in time. Your car is a moment in time. Your bicycle is a moment in time and it loosens up the rigidity we have about the way things continue. (laughs) This is powerful with people. You know, does anyone here ever get ideas about people and kind of lock them in Mm -hmm. to that? No? Anyways, Um, you can have this experience where you can just experience people constantly as just moments in time. Maybe this is a good practice for forgiving ourselves when we're we're stupid. You know? It's just, oh, a moment in time. For the time being, stupidity. (laughs) That sounds like a good tweet. Doesn't it? (laughs) Um, Once when I was younger... I went to see this Tibetan teacher, and after the retreat ended, he was talking with... I can't remember who he was talking to. So he was talking to someone, and I I always like hanging around at the end to hear, because that's usually when the best teachings happen. And he was saying about this practice in Tibet where they would take people, and they would tie them up in thick rope for 12 days so that they couldn't move. And then they would go into a dark place in a cave, Perhaps, and they would meditate, but they couldn't move for twelve days, and I guess they were given water or something. I don't remember those details. So, I I thought this was great. I was like, I want. I'm going to do this. I'm going to try and do this. So, anyways, um, I couldn't go to Tibet at the time, so I decided to do this practice, where I said, "Okay, Michael." Um sit still for 90 minutes and then have a little break and then sit still again for 90 minutes then have a little break and i was going to do this for a whole day i had just built the first center of gravity which was a garage behind my house so i did this so i think i remember it wasn't even painted yet so um i didn't tie myself up i just uh, sat and uh um Sitting a few times in a row for 90 minutes was way more. I never really sat more than 45 or 50 minutes. So, so I sat for 90 minutes, and then I would walk a little bit. And then I, I had timed it all. And uh, pretended I was in Tibet. And <laughs> then um, around the afternoon, this thing started happening where I was just in so much pain. So much pain. Because I was just taking short breaks. Anybody who sat for a long time, you know this, right? You just... So much pain. But then my eyes were closed, and I I just felt, like, just pain. But it wasn't, like, in a place anymore. It was just these sensations. And then um, there was some kind of like construction sound. I don't remember exactly. It was like trucks and just lots of commotion outside for a few hours. And then, so there was pain and there was all this commotion outside. And the commotion came and it went and the wind came and it went. It rained. There was more construction sounds, more trucks, pain. And all this was going on, sitting, hour and a half, break, hour and a half, break, Relentless pain, actually. And then it was the end. And I opened my eyes. And when I opened my eyes, the room wasn't separate from me. Because my eyes had been closed almost all day. So, how I was experiencing pain was exactly the same th- way that I experienced the room, if this makes sen- sense to you. Or, like, the commotion outside. None of it was in another place. It was all just... Uh, I don't even want to say it was here, because it also wasn't here. It was just uh, what awareness was watching. But it wasn't happening exactly to me. Even though the pain was really in me, and there was probably really construction outside, and I wasn't i wasn't in Tibet, but everything else was real. And um, I, I feel like... I hadn't thought about this a long time, but when I was reading Dogen today, preparing for the talk tonight, I immediately thought that this is what Dogen was saying. That mountains and rivers, mountains and waters, are not over there. He's not really talking about mountains and waters. We can get, like, the environmentalists are all like, yes, we have to leave the cities, we have to move. Dogen's right. It's all about the mountains. and the. I think what he's saying is that mountains are... They're a mask, and mountains mask what they stand for, which is the infinite. Mountains don't end, they are from beginningless time. Rivers don't have a beginning, they're from a beginningless time. In the same way that your life is like this, your life doesn't really have a beginning. Yes, you might have a story, you came from these parents, your parents would like to tell you that story, and so on. But actually, when you experience yourself, you experience yourself like a mountain experiences itself. You experience yourself through this mask, that you have a beginning, and you also experience yourself as being beginningless. Your're mountains and your war and your kindness, and you're your mom, and you're your dad, and you're also uh, nothing and everything. And I don't mean it in that way where people like trip out and go, <laughs> <laughs> Like, do you know this? When you go to someone you're like, "I get it. It's, it's just it's everything. It's everything, man. So it's not that kind of everything. But it's that mountains exist as mountains and they also are beginningless. They, they're deeper than even what we call geological time because we can't experience them other than beginningless. This is what Dogan seems to be saying here. Then he says, Because they have been the self since before form arose, They are emancipation actualized. Another translation is, I like this one better. (laughs) Because mountains and waters have been active since before the empty eon, they are alive at this moment now. This applies to everything because you have been arising from before beginningless time. You are alive now. Because mountains are high and broad, their way of riding the clouds also extends from the mountains. Their wondrous power of soaring in the wind comes freely from the mountains. Priest Daokai of Mount Furong said to the assembly, the green mountains are always walking. A stone woman gives birth to a child at night. (laughs) I love this cult language, you know. Green mountains are always walking. So he was just saying how still the mountains are. And then he's saying, but actually mountains are walking. If you live on a mountain range and you watch mountains through the four seasons, they're not mountains. They're not these things. They're walking, just like we're walking. If you know somebody for a long time, they're not a thing. He 's not the person I married, <laughs> right they're walking, uh-huh, just like you're walking, like everything's walking and a stone woman can't give birth to a child, right she's a stone woman, so he's saying, and a stone woman gives birth to a child he's trying to push your imagination. it's almost like saying. If you could just be still like a mountain, you'll see that mountains walk. And he's saying, but when you're caught up in just thinking mountains are mountains, then you don't realize that they are stone women giving birth to children. In other words, stretch your imagination a little bit. Mm -hmm. He's trying to push you in his Zen way. So it's like a Zen non-sequitur it seems. But what he's saying is is that <clears throat> we have a very conventional way of seeing our lives. We think that mountains are just these still heavy things. But mountains walk. They crumble they change. If you ever walk on a path in a mountain, it's crumbling under your feet. That's how the mountain walks. Um, mountains are walking. So this is the, the, the first place Dogen, and, and for the next few paragraphs, Dogan's really going to drop into this. But I just want to stop here. The mountains are walking. So what I'd like to do, because I just really wanted to introduce this tonight. I don't want to like go deep into it. It's just this term, mountains are walking. I'm wondering if we could just maybe split up into some small groups, like maybe three people. And I just want you to talk together. And I'll, I guess the question I want you to work with is: What are we talking about <laughs> tonight? Uh, mountains are walking because you're going to go home tonight, and someone will say, "Oh, you know, h- how was the talk?" You know. <laughs> well, it started in Japan, and then I don't know where we went. from. <laughs> so basically, could you could you just maybe go into groups of three? And just uh, talk together about what on earth are we talking about? Mountains are walking? What does that mean? Mountains are walking. Does that seem. Can you handle that? Okay, and you don't have to be, like, right about it. You don't have to be clever. You could even just sit there and go, I have no idea. What do you think? Yeah, I've never... Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, and there's no answer, right? There's no answer. So just let's just explore this for a few minutes. Uh, ma- mountains are walking... Gracias, the case we need so much more time or it's the case i can't have had to speak to somebody (laughs) i came here like to get away from people We, we take our way of seeing things sometimes our conventional way of seeing things, so for granted. So, Dogen really (coughs) is playing with language here to try and just get us to see a different way. Maybe it's the same thing we do when we meditate, right? In a way, when we meditate, we're just watching mountains much more closely. We're watching our lives much more closely. So we're experiencing our emotions, our feelings, our body, not from conventional viewpoints, but actually from something below that. Just like the way you need to really experience a mountain is, is like this. So, what, what did you notice uh, in your groups? And, and you can also put up your hand if you're like, ah. I have no idea. What, 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 what came up for you uh, just, just in this idea of mount, mountains walking? What is that? What is that for you?
0: For me, it's it's an invitation to throw a wrench into the thing that might seem the most solid. Here's something where we're saying it's the most solid thing you can imagine and now we're saying that it moves Mm -hmm. and Mm. in that there's this invitation to the power of of life and the movement that wants to happen.
1: Yeah, all those things in our lives that are so solid. My health, my career. Like any, you just name, name those things. Like, it would be interesting. That would be a good partner exercise. Is like, make a list together of the things in your life that are solid, that aren't walking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: no one's going to come back next week.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, somebody else. Yes, I Sebastian. I think
0: the, the title, too. Uh, in thinking of the mountain and the walking, I couldn't help thinking about uh, the rivers. Uh-huh. So uh, it was difficult to think of a mountain walking without thinking of the rivers. Yeah. And the river is always flowing, the mountain always staying still, and that dichotomy. But
1: he's inverting always yes. together, uh-huh. flipping
0: them around back and forth. Yeah. So yeah. The, the mountain really brought up when I was trying to grasp it. And then the water idea, kind
1: of yeah. met with that. Yeah, it's so weird, right? Because then we think the water's always flowing, is another way of being permanent. Like it's another way of being conventional. The water's always flowing, you know. Um, it's like you, we're still right now, but we're going. What is it? Seventy-six thousand miles an hour. But because it's relative to other things going 76,000 miles an hour, we're all just still. But that's crazy to to feel that. Can you even feel that? 76,000 miles an hour. (laughs) But I'm really still. (laughs) (laughs) Yes?
0: One of the things we talked about is a mountain appears really solid when you look at it from a distance. But then when you get up close... You can see movement of trees or pebbles or other things. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that someone else in the group said that I find interesting was, well, it changes when clouds go over and cast shadows. So it's not just uh-huh. in itself, but it's this surrounding thing, interesting.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, is the mountain separate from the shadow that's cast on it? Mm. For a painter, it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. that's really interesting. Mm. Or your life. Right? Like you when someone casts a shadow on your life? You ever get this? When like someone's you know, just does something and like you just feel it for days? You know? Just the way someone cuts you off or somebody else. Uh, we um we said how like it was
0: kind of like a a cycle, like a three years, kinda like mountain walk.
1: there's the green mountain Specifically like in the climate, like, it's like the um, changing for the year and then yeah. um she mentioned mentioned
0: like but the mountain is still like still under like this changes, uh-huh. of
1: seasons under Yeah. So visually you can really see the season and the color. Yeah. And then it shifts. But underneath it It's still it's the same. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Mm. But then we came to the conclusion that it probably isn't the same. Underneath <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yes. It shifts it's and changes yeah. and dramatic yeah. yeah. and yeah. Yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Hmm. The way you yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, I was uh, thinking about uh, how things are different at different scales uh-huh. and if you think of if you take a long enough time scale the mountain doesn't so much walk as it flows like a river uh-huh. because it's gradually grinding or being worn away and sand yeah. The gravel of the rock is, is flowing off the mountain into the uh-huh. valley right? and yeah. filling up the oceans and getting pushed back into the mountains. Uh-huh. If, if you step back far enough to, uh, to a far distant scale, like a long term time kind of, lapse yeah. movie, you would see the mountain kind of bubble up and
0: Really, did you? Yeah, I was actually going to say a similar thing <laughs> uh-huh. about well, we were, we were discussing uh, what the form like what a mountain is before its form uh-huh. with, you know what the form of a mountain is without its form yeah. um, so, and that led to like, this idea of like a long time scale and a mountain doesn't ever just exist as this thing like it builds up through geological shifts and then it also degrades over time through geological mm-hmm. shifts, so it's again this idea of like it's not ever
1: one constant shape. Yeah. If you look at a long time scale, yeah, then it is always doing yeah this like fluctuating. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm still trying to work this out of the head, but. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to like Dogan very much. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to kind of bring it to the idea of the mountain is that when do we decide that a mountain is a mountain? If I'm looking from afar maybe it's a mountain, but I'm really that close, like somebody else to say. Yeah. You know, maybe it's just pebbles falling, and we see little ants. And if I was just sitting here not realizing where I'm sitting, maybe I feel like I, I wouldn't even recognize it's a mountain. Mm-hmm. So just kind of taking the pieces apart and saying, like, yeah. What is it that I'm making a conception of? This is a mountain.
1: Right. Yeah. Christian. Um, for me it's sometimes
0: hard not to feel like grief right now knowing
1: that the memory is walking. Oh, oh. Yeah. For, for any of you who are on the online precepts course we do these videos and so a video I did yeah, I did a video yesterday where I interviewed Simone who many of you know who's a practitioner and also a psychotherapist about um possessiveness how, how do why why what's the psychology of possessiveness right? it's a mountain and she, and she had this really interesting interview so that behind possessiveness is the inability to really feel grief i thought this was really interesting to, to really be held in a way where you can feel grief And that's what's, uh, like to really think about that being behind possessiveness. It's really interesting. And um, to notice in our lives where we're possessive, and then maybe as a counter we can just say, is this thing walking?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like if we're possessing or over someone, say, oh, is this person walking? They're walking away? No, <laughs> they're, they're walking. Karina, do you ever have any hand up? No, but no. I was going to put it up. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, I was just thinking um, about how like an experience can be like a mountain and just having an experience that um, is like an awe-inspiring experience or like an amazing mm-hmm. meal where you mm-hmm. don't taste every spice but you taste like everything all together yeah. and it works. Yeah. Um, For like driving to the coast and catching an entire vista of mountains, yeah. we talked about this with our group and, and I, I had that memory come up of being in Costa Rica and seeing like a whole um, Pacific Coast stretch of Jurassic mountains all in one mm. eyesight and just that that feeling and then continuing to drive and then hike in the mountains and seeing where the river has shaped it uh-huh. and it was also different than the year it was, or uh-huh. than it was two years ago and how much it had changed and been ravaged by the rainy season and um, but I was just, I started to relate this to like thinking of just how an experience can be can, can feel complete or feel um, feel like 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 um, just the mountain being in in time, and then going into it, you, like finding the conditions or the ingredients of of what makes up that. Mm-hmm. And to seeing, mm-hmm. um, I'm just thinking of, I guess, I was thinking so much about time and how it's it's like like the frame of of um, a piece of film, and then. Like all the pieces, mm-hmm. like the frame before and after. All the them.
1: photos that make it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then just like the fullness of each uh-huh. piece of that. Hmm.
1: Well, <laughs> may, maybe we, we could uh, turn this into some homework. Would that be okay if, if everybody got homework? No. <laughs> yeah, <he's> like, no.
0: <laughs> I'm
1: so busy and my life is so miserable don't give me any one more um, so when we're meditating I, I think that one of the things we're doing is we're kind of looking out for when things aren't walking right some, some rumination starts and we start to really feel that that, that thought is so real you know or some sadness comes up, and it's just heavy. It just feels like that's a, that's the, a mountain. You know? or, or, or grief, you know, that, that's just real, you know. And it is real, it's real, and it's awe-inspiring, like a mountain is awe-inspiring. But it's also walking. And I think one of the things that really develops in meditators over the years is this ability to just kind of sit down in the middle of anything, and just to, to experience what's showing up as walking as as movement because we just develop this skill we don't even know we're doing it but it's just this ability to just kind of be in what's happening with f- more fluidity so maybe uh, I would encourage you to do this not in your formal meditation practice but during the day just to look at things as walking so you can introduce a mantra, and the mantra is walking. Walking. And just when you see, like, a building that you like, or uh, a streetcar, or, you know, things that seem permanent, Rob Ford, you know, <laughs> you just see Rob Ford, and you just go, walking.
0: You
1: know? Yeah. So, so. Yeah, maybe maybe there are things we're doing in our life where we're also not letting things walk away. When I interviewed Simone, she said there's really like two kinds of possessiveness. One is like the possessiveness where, you know, you really go into kind of like excess with it. You know, like I can just eat as much as I want to eat. You know, there's no limit. And there's the excess that's aggressive. Which is, um, I'm going to really control everything I'm doing. Which is also another kind of, you know, possessiveness. Which both, according to her idea, which I, I really have, uh, has been working on me, is a kind of defense sometimes, uh, just against walking. Just that everything's walking. Maybe the places in our life that have the most pain or where there's ghosts are places where just there's no walking happening. Um, So does this sound like something you could try? Just during the day, just a mantra, just walking. And sometimes it just won't mean anything. And you'll be like, oh, this is how I felt on Tuesday night when you said go into groups. (laughs) 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 And then sometimes it'll be like, You know, maybe you do this with your kid when they're going to bed, you know. It's, you know, walking. You know, play play, play around with this. Maybe there's (coughs) some kind of app that could just, like, remind you walking. I don't know. Anyways, we could design a little walking app. So, that's your homework. Yes, Lana? I have an app. Every time you hear a bicycle, like bicycle mm-hmm. uh huh. Oh, it's like a timer. It's a bicycle bell. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, and it just goes on random times in the day. Yeah. Totally. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there you go. So every time the bicycle bell goes, just walking, and whatever it is you're like, com- you know, obsessed about or whatever, just walk. Okay. Good luck. We will try this <laughs> <laughs> again next next week and maybe we should finish chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost.
0: Time and is lost.
1: Let us awaken. Let us awaken. Awaken. We not, not squander your life. May all beings be happy.
0: May all beings be happy.
1: May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy.
0: May all beings
1: be, all beings be safe and free from danger.
0: May all beings be safe and free from danger.
1: May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be
0: free from their ancient and twisted karma.
1: May all beings be free from every form of suffering.
0: May all beings be free from every form of suffering.
1: Thank you so much for being here tonight. Please remember that everything we offer here is uh, through Dana, which is a practice of generosity, happens on our side. Ministration, teaching is our act of generosity, and your act of generosity uh, can hopefully be putting money in the Dana box. The, The saying I've developed over the years is the teachings are free and the rent is not. Um, so please don't forget the Donna box on the way out, and really consider when you put money in there that it's not a donation. Mm-hmm. That that is it's it's the practice of generosity around interdependence. Donation is so subject-object. You know, I've got this money. I'm going to decide how much. I you know, People do this with love too. I'm going to give it. I'm not going to give it. Anything. So really try and. Practice putting money in that box as generosity uh, because of interdependence, uh, not because you're just throwing change, change in. Okay, good night. Thank
0: you.